Today, comic books and superheroes are practically synonymous, but that wasn't always the case. Superman made his debut in 1938 and opened the floodgates for an endless parade of long underwear adventurers, including Batman, Captain Marvel, the original Human Torch, Captain America, and literally hundreds of other homages and outright imitations. But by 1950, post-war America had cooled on capes and cowls. Comics were as popular as ever, and estimated one billion issues were published in 1952, but crime, horror, romance, funny animal, and western comics had dethroned the Man of Steel and his superpowered pals. In 1954, a congressional witch hunt laid the blame for juvenile delinquency squarely at the feet of the comics industry, which looked on in horror as church and parents groups around the country organized massive comic book bonfires. As entire genres were obliterated from newsstands, the industry looked backward to less controversial times. In 1956, DC introduced a new version of its 1940s speedster, The Flash, followed quickly by other Golden Age updates like Green Lantern, Hawkman, and The Atom. But it wasn't until 1960 that the superhero renaissance was in full effect. In March of that year, Gardner Fox and Mike Sikowski rolled up all of DC's most popular Silver Age heroes into the Justice League of America. Superheroes were once again at the pinnacle of the comic book pyramid, where they have remained ever since. DC's Silver Age successes were not lost on their competition. Every other publisher in the infamously imitative comics industry was in a mad dash to get their own heroes to newsstands, including Timely Comics, which was in the process of rebranding itself with the name of the very first comic book that it ever published. That comic was Marvel Comics No. 1. The month was November 1961. And this is Marvel by the Month. Welcome to Marvel by the Month, a podcast about the history of Marvel Comics. My name is Brian Stratton. And I am Rob Mill. Thanks for joining us for the first episode. Each episode, we're going to be talking about one month in the publishing history of Marvel Comics. And this is the first episode of the podcast, so the month in question is going to be November 1961, which is the cover date of the first issue of Fantastic Four. So this isn't the very first Marvel comic. There were a lot of monster comics, there were romance comics, there were western comics, uh, and all sorts of stuff. And back in the 40s, Marvel published superhero comics. Uh, But this is really what we would consider the birth of the Marvel Age of Comics. Um, Fantastic Four number one is uh, where it all begins, and we're really excited to see how this grows and evolves uh, as we uh, go month by month. And we're really looking at this from the perspective of what was it like to read these comics each month? Yeah, I think one of the really exciting things that I'm looking forward to 
is just kind of seeing how the Marvel Universe develops. Um, you know, something that we've seen as the Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, has unfolded over the last 10 years, um, you know, starting out with the Iron Man movie and then, you know, through 18 other movies uh, until, you know, you get to Infinity War, which is, that's almost not even a movie. It's just this massive event. Um, and you couldn't have done it without laying that groundwork. Um, and it's been really exciting to watch that um, kind of come together over the last decade. And, you know, for those of us who've been reading the comics for, well, decades, uh, you know, that is also, like, I remember distinctly, um, you know, grabbing issues of Avengers from the Dime Box uh, at the Comics Outpost in Barrie, Vermont, and gradually piecing together, okay, so these superheroes know these superheroes, and this is what they did before, and this is what they're going to do after, and realizing that everything is connected and how exciting that was. I did the same thing here in Portland, Oregon. Reading both DC and Marvel growing up, I naturally gravitated to Marvel. There were more layers to the characters to me, especially in my, I don't think I started when I was maybe seven. Mm -hmm. So uh, my dad collected. I remember reading the X-Men in, and I hate to date myself, spoiler alert, the 70s. They were just more relatable. I uh, My brother... Uh, my younger brother has always loved a lot of DC and I'm not, you know, not wearing a green lantern ring right now, but <laughs> I certainly love Marvel more. I always come back to Marvel. Uh, it was what hooked me in the beginning. You know, these are the things that I'm excited to share with my son, uh, who's five years old now. I can't wait for him to start experiencing this. Um, and hopefully getting the same thrill that I got from it. You know, coming back to Marvel, reading these things, with fresh eyes and 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 purposefully stripping back, you know, so I can yeah. read this with my sort of innocent eyes is so much fun. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things. Uh, it's a challenge, but it's a really fun challenge is to basically try to put yourself in the position of being, you know, in the target audience for superhero comics in 1961, which, you know, would have been eight to 12 years old. Um, that's who most of these uh, books are being written for. Um, but, you know, something that I think is going to be a theme throughout this podcast is that they were also uh, written to appeal to um, a slightly older, slightly more mature audience. So with all that said, let's talk a little bit about what it was like to be uh, a teen or tween in uh, 1961. So the cover date on this is November 1961, which means it was on the stands around August of 1961, um, which means that it was probably being written and drawn uh, six months prior to that. So we're talking, you know, January, February, March 1961. Um, what was all going on? The, uh, those were crazy times. So uh, you might have heard of uh, JFK. Mm. Uh, that is from that Billy Joel song. <laughs> yeah, sure. Blah 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 blah. JFK. He was inaugurated in January. We were in the starting of the middle of the Cold War. We mm -hmm. had, like Korea had the Korean War had gone on and ended in '53, but there were still constant Soviets were trying to expand all over, and and America representing the UN was trying to stop them. Early uh, 1961, we were talking about. The space race and rockets and, and and ICBMs like the 
missiles to shoot other continents <laughs> um, for which to shoot. Everything that you think about when you're thinking about the, the crazy mad science and the old sci-fi movies, which were also projecting all of these same themes, uh, is is in play. Going back to the Russians mm-hmm. getting to space in, in March mm-hmm. and uh, having the first man. And we I think we had Ham the Chimp uh, a little <laughs> bit earlier, but um, they had the first manned uh, and and surviving man in space. Yep. Uh, you know, that man made it back down from space. Uh, and then we, you know, it, we get there a month. Actually, we get there about three weeks later, yeah. which is uh, which is telling. I mean, th- those programs were obviously running in parallel. Yeah. And you have Kennedy saying that he wants to put a man on the moon within a decade. Yeah. But there's a ton of anxiety in the U.S. about this. The Soviets had beaten us to the first unmanned uh, orbital flight with Sputnik in, I think, 58. Um, They beat us to the first manned space flight uh, in 61. America had emerged from World War II as this, this world power. And we were really not excited about the prospect of having to give that back. Uh, I mean, these were the things that were on, you know, Stanley and Jack Kirby's minds as they're creating Fantastic Four number one. They're also trying to capture some of the success of uh, Justice League, which uh, DC Comics had started publishing in the last year. Martin Goodman, Stanley's uncle, um, tasks him with the chore of uh, give us a Justice League, um, and so Stan works with Jack Kirby, and uh, what they come up with is the Fantastic Four, which is really funny to me that this was what, uh, this, this was their idea of, of what the Justice League uh, should be for Marvel. If you only know Marvel Comics through the movies, the Fantastic Four is not even a footnote for you. Um, <laughs> it's a depressing footnote if you know more. It's, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's really, really sad because, like, growing up as, as a comics reader, when I really got into reading comics in the 80s, like, the Fantastic Four were the heart and soul of the Marvel Universe. And for them to be kind of left out in the cold uh, in the cinematic universe just really sucks. This is where it all begins. This is the, the foundational stone of building the Marvel Empire. It opens with uh, an introduction. Here's our our uh, protagonist, Dr. Reed Richards, Ben Grimm, Susan Storm, Johnny Storm. It just gives their names. They are not in costumes. You have no idea who these people are or what their powers are. Um, and uh, the first page is really mysterious. Uh, the logo appears floating in a cloud of smoke over the skies of New York. Um, a very shadowy reed richards is standing in a window holding a smoking flare gun and he's not super excited about having just used it um (laughs) he says it's the first time i found it necessary to give the signal i pray it will be the last which is a really weird thing to say in the first page of your first issue of your comic book (laughs) because reed if this is the last time you give that signal then something has gone terribly terribly wrong at the offices of marvel comics and granted we've had a spoiler from the cover sure uh you know the cover is awesome mm. uh the cover is just so you you see the cover and it's all of the characters in action with a giant green monster coming up through the streets of what appears to be a city or new york city as we you know 
come to understand for the Marvel universe, actually, eventually in the Marvel universe. Yeah. But, uh, so then when you jump right into from that to just four people and a guy with a flare gun, (laughs) you're, you're curious as to what's going to happen. And then you get into the characters actually responding to that signal. So, and, and it's, it's a nice setup because it goes through each of them doing whatever they do. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, and see and and getting the idea of their powers for each of them. So the second page is all about uh, Susan Storm, um, who we will learn uh, later is the Invisible Girl. A friend of hers sees the sign in the sky. Sue turns invisible, leaves the party, pushes past a bunch of people while she's still invisible, um, <laughs> gets a ride from a cabbie, freaks the hell out of him, and, and, and she's she's ready for action, sort of. At this point, you get the sense that she's really still getting used to her powers, uh, where she's a little surprised that it works, uh, that she really is invisible, um, and now she's ready to do what has to be done. That's actually, the I think, well said, because each of them, you can tell they're adjusting to yes. their powers. And so, and I, and I forget that. They are very much having trouble, or or in some ways adjusting. And by having trouble, I mean I'm already looking at Benjamin Grimm. Yeah. So tell us <laughs> tell us a little bit about what uh, what our intro is to Ben Grimm. So I can I can relate a tiny bit because I'm not a normal sized person, <laughs> um, but he's he is um, in a men's clothing store. And he's uh, you see a just big shadowy figure in an overcoat and and a and a fedora or probably larger. I don't know my styles of hats <laughs> and and sunglasses. And he's so in disguise or but it's it's enormous and and he is angry that he can't find anything that fits his size. And then he hears that there's the signal, pulls off the overcoat and the hat and the glasses. And rushes outside. And when he does, you see that he is a giant, lumpy rock man. And he busts through the door in his hurry. Like, he can't fit through a doorway. And, you know, I hit my head on things. I Luckily, I don't have that shoulder span. It is, you know, relatable instantly for me uh, and my family of large people to, <laughs> to... I mean, we're not monsters, but we are... We're people point at us. Uh, <laughs> so, so I related to that, but he, he immediately encounters, he busts through the doorway. He gets shot at by a cop. He is having a bad time. It's nice to see that, that some things haven't changed in New York in the last 50 years. That if, if you surprise a cop, expect to get shot at. And he just busts in manhole cover and jumps into the sewer, which is what you should do if you're shot at by a cop. Apparently. Yeah. And, uh, and then, one of my favorite things, just before we get to the next part, when he comes out of the sewer, <laughs> no, I love he just pops up in front of a car and trashes it. So, And this is an, a thing we see cinematically. The hero, or presumably a hero, bashing a car in a full-on front-end collision is so cool. And then, uh, and then blaming the driver. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, fool, did you not see me in time? Then we, then we cut to... Johnny Storm. Yeah, so uh, Johnny Storm, uh, young uh, hot rodder, literally sitting in his hot rod uh, because it's 1961 and he's a teenager, and that's what 1961 teenagers do. Go watch American Graffiti. Yes. Seriously, do. It's like pre-Star Wars, Star Wars without any of the Star Wars. (laughs) Well said. (laughs) 
yeah, so he's working on his car. Um, his friend sees a signal in the sky. Uh, without even thinking, uh, Johnny bursts into flame uh, because he is the Human Torch. Uh, and just totally uh, <laughs> liquefies his car. So uh, he's literally hot-headed. Um, and uh, either... He's got a trust fund or a very short attention span. It's either that he has a trust fund or that some Jack Kirby really wanted to make a melting car. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Or, <laughs> and, and, you know, God bless him. No one does it better. Uh, so Johnny Storm streaks across the sky. Um, the Air Force, quite understandably, uh, scrambles some fighter jets to uh, try to figure out what's going on. Because remember, uh, the intercontinental ballistic missile has just been created. Uh, so, yeah, if you see something streaking, uh, across the skies of, uh, Manhattan, you'd better get some planes in the air. So the torch, uh, is trying to avoid them, uh, accidentally melts another one, uh, and gets a missile fired at him for his troubles. A nuclear warhead. A nuclear warhead over the skies of New York. But, uh, the torch is saved by a, a pair of rubbery elongated hands, which could only belong to... Mr. Fantastic Reed Richards. <laughs> Dr. Tried, Reed Richards. Tried, yeah. Professor Doctor? Professor Doctor. Doctor uh, Professor. Who snatches it out of the sky and somehow, with dazzling speed, hurls it far from shore where it explodes harmlessly. Probably making a monster. I'm just saying. Yeah. Odds uh, are. Harmlessly is, means it makes a monster. Johnny loses his flame power, which is what keeps him aloft because it keeps him lighter than air. So yeah. he falls. He's, he's which is a, a sweet shot, by yes. the way. It's like Johnny falling with the tops of skyscrapers below him. Reed Richards catches Johnny. They're safe. They get together. Reed's so happy. He tells everyone, you know, you all heeded my summons. Good. Uh, and it's a, a fearful task that awaits them. But before, before we learn what this fearful task is, we have to learn a little bit more about who these folks are and how they got this way. Basically, uh, they all knew each other um, before they were the Fantastic Four. Reed uh, was uh, a scientist working to uh, help the United States uh, get a manned flight into orbit to beat the commies. His uh, girlfriend, Sue Storm, is present. Her kid brother... Johnny uh, is also there, um, and uh, Ben Grimm, uh, who is Reed's friend and their pilot, uh, is also present. Uh, and Reed is pushing hard to get into space. He really, really wants to beat the Russians. Ben is warning him, we don't know enough about cosmic rays and the effects that they could possibly have. They might kill us all if we go up there. Um but Sue intervenes uh, on Reed's behalf uh, and says, we've got to take that chance unless we want the commies to beat us to it. So, and then... She calls him a coward. She calls him a coward. And uh, one uh, Ben Grimm smashed desk later, uh, they are sneaking onto the rocket launching pad uh, in the dead of night. You know, we were talking about popular culture and art earlier too, but... There are so many things with the coloring of these of this comic. Yeah, that is indicative of not only the era, but uh, you know, having studied some art history, I'm an, I nerd out even more than mm -hmm. I geek out sometimes. Yeah, where absolutely. There's this scene of them launching. They show the rocket. The rocket's bright yellow on a blue field, 
then inside of the rocket is all of them. They are all pink, just mm-hmm. straight pink. Uh, and the the rest of the background, the seats are red, and all of this stuff is like, to me, and it's always been the case. It's it's pop art at its finest. Yeah. So I believe that in this commercial endeavor, they made art right from the get go. Yeah, they launch into space, mm-hmm. and guess what? Rick tick tack tick tick, <laughs> they get hit by cosmic rays. Ben Grimm was right. <laughs> Professor Reed Richards. Uh, did not uh, do his due diligence. Rocket is not sufficiently shielded from the cosmic rays. Johnny feels like he's burning up, and everything is just going wrong. Uh, The rocket crashes back to Earth. They all survive. They get out of it okay. But then all sorts of bad things start happening. (laughs) First of all, Sue says she feels so strange, and suddenly, from the ground up, just starts to disappear. Which is kind of a freaky effect, honestly. (laughs) If, you know, like, your legs are disappearing, then your torso is disappearing, and then you're gone. And she has no idea how long it will last. So she, uh, you know, they have, at this point, no idea what is happening to her. And then she pops back. So right when they're like, will we ever see her again? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then everyone thinks it's great, we're going to be okay, sort of, except for Ben. Who says what will happen to the rest of us? Yep. And Ben and Reed start to get into it, uh, but that comes to a real quick halt uh, because Ben starts transforming. Uh, His face gets all lumpy and orange, and his head gets bald, uh, and he tears off a tree and (laughs) swings it at Reed, uh, who responds by uh, elastically stretching out of the way and then... Uh, wrapping his rubber arms around Grimm over and over again like some sort of human straitjacket. And as Johnny says, uh, you've turned into monsters, both of you. It's those rays, those terrible cosmic rays. He bursts into flames uh, and instantly uh, seems pretty stoked about it, uh, (laughs) pun intended. Um, He just says, wow, I'm... When I get excited, I can feel my body begin to blaze. I'm lighter than air. I can fly. Look, I can fly. So he's just... And in the background, he's started a forest fire. Yeah, you can... He's like, woohoo! <laughs> Three panels into him discovering his power, he has lit a forest on fire. Yep. <laughs> and then they watch it burn. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but they uh, they quickly decide that they need to use these powers uh, for the sake of all humanity. Uh, and they do the whole, you know, everyone put their hand in the circle. They very quickly give themselves names, uh, code names, uh, the Human Torch, the Invisible Girl, Mr. Fantastic, and the Thing. And so was born the Fantastic Four, and from that moment on, the world would never again be the same. That's easy to chalk up as just straight-up comic book hyperbole, but I think that's a really, actually, fair statement. Like, I think the Fantastic Four uh, absolutely did transform uh, what superhero comics were. Um, So, yeah, I think uh, right on the money. And we're not even done with the issue. By the time we finish the issue, you will see sort of the, the underpinnings of the 
Marvel Universe. This is where things really start to change and where comics become something more. Yep. Let's move on to uh, the second half of the issue. So we've met our heroes. Uh, we've got their origin stories. Now um, let's find out what Reed was getting them all together for um, at the very beginning of the comic. Um, and here's part two. The Fantastic Four meet the Mole Man. This opens with uh, Reed has got his team uh, all together. Um, and he says he's got some pictures to show them. Uh, and I love this. Uh, to which Ben Grimm responds, uh, what are they, pinups? It's kind of a dirty comment. And, and the fact that he's wearing a trench coat just makes it creepier. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, so Reed's got a bunch of pictures of destroyed uh, atomic plants um, uh, behind the Iron Curtain. So the Soviet Union. So someone has been uh, attacking these atomic plants all over the world um, uh, from underground uh, and uh, taking everything under the surface of the earth. Uh, not unlike uh, a lot of the movies that were popular at the time. Uh, Journey to the Bottom of the Sea that Journey year. To the bottom of the sea, but yeah. Journey to the Center of the Earth. Uh, certainly Jules Verne was uh, popular in being, uh, because of the technology available, mm-hmm. the special effects. Yes. They could, they could create those things. So they, uh, he was top of mind. Maybe you've heard of a little character called Mothra. <laughs> the movie came out in 1961. Right. So, you know, not only were monster comics incredibly popular at that time, but, you know, uh, monster movies were also uh, huge at the box office. Uh, this is what the kids of America were watching. Um, and, man, no one can draw monsters like Jack Kirby. Um, his his pre-Fantastic uh, Four monster stuff uh, for Marvel was amazing. Um, and this is just... You know, it, it, it's more of the same. He he just brings all of that uh, to the table here um, as he shows uh, some French soldiers uh, who are the latest uh, victims of <laughs> this mysterious attack. And this is great. Uh, the reveal of the monster is fantastic. So you see the atomic plant uh, falling into the earth. You see the reaction shot of the soldiers. And then you just see these two massive green monstrous hands coming up from the pit uh, at and you're keeping everything at a very human scale, um, so you don't. It's not like the monster shows up and you're looking at a bunch of tiny soldiers. It's, you're looking at the soldiers and you're seeing just how enormous this thing is. Um, yeah, hands the size of buses. Yeah, and the the humans are still in scale and shooting at it. Yes. <laughs> so off off the FF go, in uh, in a pretty cool jet um, to what is they have found is Monster Isle. Mm-hmm. And uh, Monster Isle looks... If you've seen uh, Kong Skull Island... Yes. Um, it looks a little bit like if the thing melted some more and his <laughs> head was a volcano. The uh, island is seismically unstable and they uh, tumble down uh, into the earth uh, in a cave-in. At least Reed and Johnny do. Um, Reed quickly transforms into a human parachute Um emphasizing that at this point, Reed is by far the most competent member of the Fantastic Four. <laughs> he is always in charge. He's always thinking three steps ahead. Yeah, he can think on his rubbery feet. So Johnny and Reed are just fumbling about in darkness, and suddenly they hit a blinding light. They pass out. This light is so blinding. They wake up uh, in weird suits with some kind of visors, and 
They have joined Devo. <laughs> they have joined Devo, and they rock. Uh, <laughs> and no, they and they see a valley of diamonds, which is what is somehow causing. The, I'm guessing there's some phosphorescence, but anyway, valley of diamonds blinds them, and then they meet the Mole Man. Yes, but before we learn anything more about the Mole Man, uh, we got to figure out what happened to uh, Sue and Ben. So uh, they're still on the surface. Another monster shows up. Uh, sneaking up on Sue as much as a 30-foot monster can sneak up. Ben Grimm tells Sue to get out of the way, uh, and he's going to take this thing to school. And he just beats the tar out of it. That's how you solve things. Absolutely, yeah. Just, when in doubt, throw it in the ocean. Ben says, now let's go and find that skinny, loudmouth boyfriend of yours. (laughs) Sue's just like, oh... Man, I really wish she could stop hating Reed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Recurring okay. theme. Here we go. Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we see the Mole Man on his mighty throne. Mm-hmm. Then we get into the Mole Man beginning to describe who he is and why he's there. And and that is what uh, another piece that really frames the Marvel Universe. Absolutely. And uh, when you kind of find out where Mole Man's coming from, it's hard not to be a little bit sympathetic toward him. He's not a good-looking dude. He gets laughed at by women. He won't get hired for jobs because potential employers are afraid he'll scare other employees away. And just random jerks uh, laugh at him and ask him if that's that's his face or if he's wearing a mask. Like, uh, you know, after a steady diet of this for 20 or 25 years, uh, maybe you, like the Mole Man, would say, even this loneliness is better than the cruelty of my fellow men as he strikes out uh, to find total isolation uh, as he looks for a legendary land at the center of the earth. If you're not sympathetic to that in any way, then you've either lived a fabulously insulated life or (laughs) screw you. Yeah. Or you were one of the people who turned the Mole Man into (laughs) the Mole Man. So thanks a lot. Turns us into the Mole Man. (laughs) So he, he wanders and wanders and eventually... When he's abandoned all hope, he finds Monster Isle. Yep. And he finds the strange cavern beneath it. And eventually falls and wakes up, but then carves out an underground empire. Begins to... <laughs> he he meets the occupants there and begins to rule them. So after he's finished explaining his origin story to Reed and Johnny, uh, he tosses one of them... And it's not clear which one. Uh, He tosses one of them uh, a staff uh, and demonstrates uh, that in the dim light, uh, he has heightened his other senses to the point where uh, his uh, physical prowess is greater than theirs. So he's definitely found an environment where he has the upper hand. And uh, after defeating his foe, uh, he says that what he's been doing is just the beginning. Um... His mighty mole creatures will attack and destroy everything that lives above the surface. Cue the entrance of Ben Grimm and Sue Storm. Before they can get to the Mole Man, he pulls a string, rings a bell, bong bong, and brings out that really cool giant green monster. And it comes out from the floor. It's from, we're already in the center of the earth, and it comes out from somewhere beneath it. Awesome. That's when... Everyone strikes into action and starts to act as a real team. Yes. This is the point where they all come together. Uh, Reed grabs the Mole Man, who keeps pulling on that cord. Uh, Every monster in Monster Island uh, comes out uh, to chase after the Fantastic Four. 
Johnny Storm uh, burns a, an exit tunnel um, for them to escape. Um, they get into their jets uh, and they fly away from Monster Island. And uh, then, um, well, we're we're <laughs> at the we're in the last three panels of the last page of the comic. So uh, Mole Man just blows up the island. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, Sue says, "We hope we've seen the last of him." And Reed says, it's really for the best. Uh, there's no place for him in the world. Uh, maybe he'll find peace down there. <laughs> so I guess we chalk this up as a win for the FF uh, in their first adventure. Um, they didn't really do anything except Run escape, away from monsters. Yeah. You know, hey, for your first time out, good enough. Yeah, so that's, that's Fantastic Four number one. Let's talk about uh, what held up and uh, and what really didn't. My standout piece is 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 what we talked about with the the mole man, yeah, the the sympathetic villain. So, um, in any number of other media, there are villains are villains are more than ever the one dimensional yeah. character. Brainiac, and, why do you want to keep shrinking all these cities? Because yeah. I'm Brainiac. I'm mad. Yeah. Uh, I'm evil. And to hear, to set up the origin of a villain with something so sympathetic right out of the gate is something that that Marvel excelled at from this moment. Yeah, from and, the jump. Yeah. And and that's, so to me, when Mole Man is talking about loneliness is better than experiencing other humans, that is the moment. Yes, absolutely. Um, How about you? Yeah, that and the character dynamics generally, I think, are just they were just so much more sophisticated. And you know, let's let's judge it on the scale, uh, the appropriate scale, you know, for the time and for the medium. But you know, th- this is something that's being written for eight to twelve year olds uh, in 1961. Um, but like the the character dynamics between like take Reed Richards and Ben Grimm for example, a smart guy who means well, uh, and his friend, a blue collar working class who has just as pure intention um and street smart and yeah. street smart and he he's trying to tell the doctor uh that his the decision he's about to make is a bad decision he gets overruled he was right uh <laughs> he's transformed into a monster the guy who was wrong who should have known better doesn't really suffer any negative effects from it they still are you know, they're family. I mean, that's the Fantastic Four is a family. And it really kind of illustrates that that very difficult dynamic of, you know, you're you're stuck with these people. Um, you know, circumstances thrown you together. Um, and it's up to you what you do uh, in that moment that reveals your true character. Um, and I think that's really, really important. And whether Stan meant that mm-hmm. uh, when he was tasked with making mm-hmm. Marvel's Justice League, instead of making a group of fantastic powered people that were pretty unrelated, he went all the way to painfully related. Absolutely. Like, like uh, past history, past issues, likes and dislikes with one another. Mm-hmm. So they come just like a family with their own foibles and infighting. And, and to pull all that off in, you know, and really, the first thirteen pages of a comic book is is pretty incredible. Um, and in contrast that to, 
you know, not to continue beating up on DC, but I mean, the the issue of Justice League that was on the stands, Justice League number seven, and uh, with the cover day of November sixty one, um, it's it's an adventure where the the Justice League has members of the Justice League have to go undercover uh, at this fun house. It's been infiltrated by aliens, and they've got this master scheme uh, that's not terribly important, but. Uh, so they go in their civilian identities, and, and one of the aspects of their plan that they think is going to make this work so well is the fact that no one in the Justice League knows each other's secret identity. So they aren't even going to know who's there. And so you get the, fan, the the sense that the Justice League is a bunch of co-workers. Uh, they get together, they do a job, they go home, they don't hang out after work, whereas the Fantastic Four... You get the feeling that they would really like to have moments where they didn't have to be around each other all the time, but this is the hand that fate has dealt them. And there's also that reluctance and amateurism of the heroes where, you know, they're not 100% sure if they're up to the task uh, at the start of this issue. They're they're not great at their jobs yet, um, <laughs> which is also like a peculiar vulnerability to, to have your you know, your title characters be showing for me. And I'm, I'm certain you're going to agree since you know you are uh, much more visually inclined uh, than I am, but like, man, Jack Kirby artwork is just timeless. Like I can look at that all day. Like there's nothing that Kirby's done where that I can't at least appreciate on a visual level and a, and a visual storytelling level. Um, he, he's just, He's next level. Um, he he always was, uh, and he he never was anything less than that. I agree. Like there, there are times where similar there you can as you see the Marvel universe unfold, you can tell where, uh, as we have joked about, when somebody's banging on Stanley's door saying, "I need that script right now," <laughs> uh, where you can tell that he didn't put in all of the time he would have liked to. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can start to feel that, but but even Jack Kirby dashing something off, yeah is so far superior to other people. He is he's an artist like oh, in, in the truest form. Even as someone who is not a comics artist, I have daily inspired by him. I mean, I know the people who you know, Mike Mignola and Michael Allred mm-hmm. and the, the people who I really adore their artwork. Mm-hmm. Um even Frank Miller to some extent. Oh, like yeah. they they're all inspired by this, especially his like ink work too, like the chiaroscuro, the like uh, yeah, the heavy black, yeah, the heavy shadows, yeah, the contrast, yeah, and yeah. it's mm-hmm. uh, and and then the the inks on them, especially in these early days, are so poppy that I love that color. I would challenge anyone to say like this is not art. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And and I mean Kirby was just a savant. Like uh, I remember uh, reading his. Uh, his former uh, assistant, uh, Mark Avenier, would just tell stories about how when Kirby sat down to do a drawing or, or to lay out a page, he would just start in one corner of the page and work his way around it. He wouldn't plot things out first. He had it all in his head, and it just came out of his pencil. Mm-hmm. And that's just, I mean, that's a, that's an amazing gift. That's a, a once-in-a-generation talent. That's like Tesla stuff. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Not the um, car, the person. Yeah, and, and also, I mean, talking to Kirby, like another thing that I think holds up really well for this, especially in the modern age, and, and and it's funny that I think it really only started feeling very modern fairly recently was the fact that in the first issue or several of the issues of the Fantastic Four, they don't have costumes. They don't have, you know, flashy superhero duds. Um, they're just in street clothes. Um, and in Ben Grimm's case, just a... 
you know, a, a, a pervert coat. Uh, and then like a diaper. Like, yeah. <laughs> he's either wearing a pervert coat or a diaper. Like that's kind of how he rolls. Yeah. But I mean, you know, if you look at the way that like in a lot of the superhero movies, uh, like like the, the first X-Men movies, you know, they're really, you know, very simplified costumes um, to the point where they look more like uniforms or like, you know, um, just like tactical gear, you know, things like that. Captain America, Winter Soldier, like throughout 98% of that movie, he's not wearing the red, white, and blue costume. You right. know, he's wearing a really stripped down, streamlined uh, suit. And this whole idea that if you're telling the story the right way, you don't need to put someone in bright red and green long underwear to get across the idea that they are the superhero. Um, and Kirby was a master of that. And that's something that he brought with him, you know, from when he uh, created Ma- uh, Challengers of the Unknown um, a few years prior over at DC. Or DC, yeah. Yeah, which never really took off. And I don't know if they realized what they had. And, but, I mean, maybe they didn't have it. Maybe it needed that that weird Stanley spark to that's where, really yeah. bring it to life. I think you know? that them... Uh, and there's, and if you want to go Google that, there's mm-hmm. plenty of argument about who created what. Yeah. But uh, I think I know Brian and I both agree it's, uh, it's both of them. Yeah. Like there, uh, there's no way this specific thing happened without both Stanley and Jack Kirby. Like, yeah. what Kirby created with Challengers of the Unknown is uh, very close with powers, abilities, and the and sort of the some of the interaction even, mm-hmm. but not this this family. Yeah. And that's what I think really changes everything. And I think that's part of what's Dan brought to it. Yeah. He, 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 he grounded Jack in, in certain ways. And it's very fair to say that Jack helped Stan soar in ways that he never was able to. With other yeah. It's artists. the human and the human element and the hero. Yeah. Together. Yeah. yeah. Yep. An amazing groundbreaking uh, piece of work, which is not to say that there aren't some things that maybe didn't, necessarily hold up so well um (laughs) and honestly there's not a lot and this is you know really picking some nits um but you know one thing that honestly has always bugged me um from really kind of my early days of of comics fandom is that the character names of the fantastic four are just phoned in they're incredibly (laughs) lazy like so you've got mr fantastic which is literally just the first word of the team with mr in front of it You've got the Invisible Girl, which, you know, is a little problematic, you know, in modern days for other reasons, but it's just the Invisible Man gender-swapped. Um, you got the Human Torch, which was already a character that Marvel created in the 1940s, and they didn't even bother to reference the fact that he had already existed. They just lifted the name and updated it, um, similar to what DC had been doing with, like, Green Lantern and The Flash. Um, and then you got The Thing, which, I mean, you literally cannot come up with a more generic name than The Thing. It's like... The the would it's be like the that guy. The, yeah, the it the the same name. Uh, you know, it was used to describe a disembodied hand and a you know a shape shifting alien creatures. So, uh, you know, it literally is a name that can be used to apply to anything. <laughs> um, my friend Tony uh, had a great line uh, where you know talking about the the debate between who did what uh, between Stan and Jack uh, creating the Fantastic Four, um, and you know he. He said that there was some speculation uh, that the uh, Fantastic Four's powers were originally meant to be elemental. So Reed Richards would have been water, Sue Storm would have been air, etc. Um, and 
Tony said that uh, that never really jived with him because uh, he felt like if that had been the case, then Jack would have named all the characters uh, and the thing would have been named Dirt with two T's. (laughs) (laughs) Also, you know, the character designs for the thing and the Human Torch, they took some time to refine. um, And it probably wasn't immediately obvious to folks who were reading it in 1961, but when you know what these characters look like a few years later... Um, like the classic rock look for the thing, and yeah. and the um, you know kind of like the 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 red nude form of the Human Torch with the flames surrounding it. Like he's, those he's are a little great. more human. At that yeah, point. exactly. Like I, I I just love those character designs so much, and you know not having them there from the jump, there's a disconnect there. But um, and also honestly, it's not much of a plot, which we kind of touched on. Is like you know they resolve it in the second to last panel by just having the mole man blow up his own island. <laughs> so like we got out, we got out, hooray! Uh, but overall, this is about as good as you know early '60s comics get. Um, it literally, I think, changed how comics were approached. Um, this is what made. I mean, really, this is the beginning of what made Marvel. Yes, what the movies you are watching now. Yes. Absolutely. This is the foundation of what made Marvel great and and what built this empire that you see now. And this this is part of the same universe. So, Rob, if you had to choose a scene or you know a panel or two um, from this issue that you think sums up uh, the high point of, of November 1961 uh, for the Marvel Universe, um, what jumped out at you? To me, especially looking and knowing about what the history is, uh, of of what's going on at the time, their decision to rush to space to beat the commies. At first, now as an adult, that looks crass, but it it was on everyone's mind at that time. Anyone can resonate with yes, of course you go to space, whether or not you know about cosmic rays. Mm-hmm. So that that origin itself, it puts the Marvel universe in our universe. You're going to see this in the next few episodes uh, of this podcast, but that's really, that's ultimately the difference maker, is that there is no Gotham, there is no Metropolis, there is no Central City. Like, this takes place in New York, um, <laughs> and it takes place in our New York, uh, in the New York of of 1961 uh, in the United States of America. And it pulls from current events and makes things feel very real and very immediate. And and there's an emotional realism there. I think if I have to pick a couple panels that, that jump out at me, um, it's right on um, uh, right at the very end of their origin story, like right at the midpoint uh, of the issue, where uh, Reed and Ben have this exchange uh, right after they've, they've uh, discovered their powers for the first time, where um, Reed gets up and, and, and you know, after... Uh, you know, everyone's obviously pretty freaked out by what's happened. Uh, the one guy uh, who's actually feeling pretty good about, uh, you know, where he's at um, and didn't just set a forest on fire, he, he starts giving this big speech about how, you know, they have to use, uh, you know, they, they have more power than any uh, other humans on Earth have ever had. Um, and uh, Ben Grimm interrupts him. And this guy who has just literally been transformed into a monster, into this deformed freak. And he says, you don't have to give this speech big shot. Like, we get it. We got to use this power to help mankind, right? And that's, like, right there. There's the two poles of, like, every hero in the Marvel Universe. It's like you are either a super genius who's got everything going for him, or you are a monster who does the right thing, even though the world will never appreciate you for it. Um, And I think that right there, like 
that is the DNA. The the Fantastic Four may not be part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but yet. that is yet. <laughs> uh, but that is there. I mean, that is is absolutely you know, and it, it, it runs through every hero um, that they've introduced in the screen, and I would say all the good heroes that they've introduced since in the comics. <laughs> yeah, and even some of the villains who have come around. Sure, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Let's wrap this thing up, um, and uh, we're going to end every episode by uh, just deciding uh, how marvelous uh, this month was. Um, and this month, uh, we're going to put this on a scale uh, between, um, at the top, we're going to put Mr. Fantastic, uh and at the bottom, we're going to put the Mole Man. So, <laughs> Rob, on a uh, on a scale of Mr. Fantastic and Mole Man, how marvelous was this month? This was flame on. <laughs> this yeah. was uh, the. I mean, again, just because it's the start. Yeah. Um, and I would, and I, and I mean, flame on by beyond. Yes. Mr. Fantastic. Yep. Yep. It's it, it captures the imagination. It is it, elemental. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> How about you? Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, it, it's this is, it's not the best Marvel comic that was ever published, but it is absolutely the most important Marvel comic that was ever published because it was first and it just knocked it out of the park um, from the very beginning, um, and it just set the tone and it set the pace for everything that would follow. Uh, it is impossible to uh, overstate how great this is. Thanks for uh, listening to the first episode. Uh, hopefully there's going to be a whole lot more of these coming. So uh, every week um, we're going to take on another month uh, in the publishing history of Marvel Comics. So next episode will not be December 1961 because at this point Marvel was still on a bi-monthly uh, publishing schedule for their titles. Uh, so we will uh, see you again uh, next week in January 1962. So, uh, thanks for listening. My name is Brian Stratton. I'm Rob Mill. And this is Marvel by the Month. Join us for the next month, next week.